Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. By reason of his profession, Matthew, like Paul, who persecuted the church, was sent to preach the gospel as one despised by his addressees. How could a Jew who collaborates with Roman authorities approach his fellow Jews to collect taxes for their occupier? Worse, how could the Lord send such a person to preach his gospel? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 272 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today we continue our reading of Matthew chapter 9, this time looking at verses 9 through 13. And this section of Matthew introduces a concept that is not unique to Matthew, namely that of the tax collector. It's difficult for modern addressees of the story of Matthew hearing these verses. It's really a challenge not to think about the tax collector as a pejorative function in modern terms. Because today when people complain about taxes, what they're complaining about is the fact that some percentage of their paycheck goes away. That's not why the tax collector was unpopular in late antiquity. It's more nuanced. Obviously, no one likes to part with their money, but their unpopularity has more to do with the political situation. Anyone living in Judea, any member of Israel who wanted to participate in temple sacrifice would pay a temple tax. They might grumble about how much the religious leaders are demanding they pay for an offering or whatever, but it's a different kind of grumbling than complaining that a Jew is demanding money of you to give to the Roman occupying army or to give to Caesar. Remember, this is a Jew who is suddenly a proxy of the Roman Empire, a kind of traitor to his own people. The tax collector is someone who's trying to play both sides. So in this sense, they're damaged goods in the Gospel of Matthew. Right. They're neither on the side of the Jews, because the Jews see him as someone who's working on behalf of the government, but the government hires him specifically because he's a Jew and he can then work among the Jews in order to get to collect the money that's coming to them. So he sits in this uncomfortable area where he's accepted by neither side. And so therefore, he's the ultimate outsider. So knowing that this is the case, that the one who's collecting the taxes is this outcast, is this dirty figure who's always dealing with money and it makes his living off of extracting money from other people. He doesn't actually work. He just takes the money from other people's work. Matthew does something very specific with this. In Luke and in Mark, 
Jesus calls the publican, and his name is Levi. In Matthew, his name is Matthew. The gospel according to Matthew is tied to this one who was on the margin, who was taking advantage of others, who was this untouchable, liminal outsider figure. Matthew, the writer of the gospel, identifies specifically with this outsider. And Jesus called him from sitting at this table where he was extracting this fee, this tax from others. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So a couple of things right off the bat, keeping in mind what you said, Richard, about the way that Matthew inserts his name here, it calls to mind the function of Paul in the New Testament, because Paul was a persecutor of the church. And here Matthew is making himself someone who is abusing the local community by extracting wealth for personal gain. He's a traitor who profits on his betrayal of the community by working for the Romans. And the name Matthew, which is obviously related to the name Mathan in the genealogy, means gift, implying the Lord's grace in this particular context. Because you have somebody who was, again, a tax collector, who is now presenting to you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have somebody who embodied or inhabited this function of the one whom everyone recognizes alongside the prostitute as being corrupt. You have this one responding to the command, follow me. And because of his trust in the commandment, he is now functional as a disciple of Jesus, who is now presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's tempting to look at the insertion of Matthew's name as an act of modesty, but we know from the letters of Paul and from other examples in the Bible that this kind of a gesture is, in a way, expressing Matthew's boldness that he was this sinner who has now been appointed to deliver the good news. And of course, he delivers the teaching of Jesus Christ, at least he has thus far in the Gospel of Matthew, forcefully and without apology. And the word you said was so powerful, Father, that Jesus made him functional. And there are two things that are significant here, but you have to get into the original languages. You mentioned the Matan from the genealogy. This is Matthew. So what's the difference? The difference is that this name has the suffix Yah. It would in Hebrew, at least, or in Aramaic. And so it's the gift of the Lord instead of just the gift, which we have in the genealogy. He is now the gift of the Lord. And of course, the gift that he gives is this gospel, is the word of the Lord that he transmits. Secondly, when it says he arose, it's Anastas, which is just like when Jesus arose from the dead, it's the same verb. And so he went from being non-functional to being functional. He rose up. And as soon as he rose up, he followed Jesus, no questions asked. This is always a good sign, at least in the beginning, when someone drops what they're doing and follows Jesus. This contrasts then Matthew with Peter, who dropped his net, but then became a little questionable. Matthew stood up from the table of his livelihood and 
became the writer of the gospel who transmitted the word faithfully of the Lord. This is not the false humility of being self-effacing. This is not Matthew showing how humble he is. That's the point I wanted to make earlier, Rich. This is Matthew making his sin functional unto instruction. He's playing the role of Israel in verse 9, and it is boasting in the way that Paul boasts of being the least of the apostles. Remember that our individual sins are non-functional. We think of our sins as a big deal, and we ruminate on our sins because we're very individualistic in our understanding of submission to the commandment. But sin in the New Testament is functional for instruction. It's not individualized. Just like redemption is not individualized. I said it earlier, I'll repeat it on today's program, to be redeemed, to be forgiven of your debt, is to be set free, to be purchased from one slave owner in order to become the slave of a new master that has nothing to do with your personal sins. The story is not about us. The story is about the will of God. It is his will that we are forgiven. It is his will that Matthew's stumbling be used as a keros unto instruction for the nations. And so in this sense, Matthew's sin is important, but our sins are not important. And this keros, I'm so happy you mentioned that, Father, because it just made me think, I'm going to push this a little bit farther. As a publican, as someone who collected taxes, his job was to take the fruit of other people's labor and deliver it to the government. He didn't earn the fruit. He didn't grow the fruit. He didn't cultivate the fruit. He just takes the fruit by the authority of the government. This is similar to what the nations do. The nations are able to learn from the word of the story of Israel and all the trials and tribulations of Israel, but are able to then benefit from the fruit of the Torah, even though they were called in these latter days. Matthew is benefiting from this fruit that he himself didn't grow, but nevertheless is fruit unto his own salvation because he drops everything and follows Jesus and delivers the word faithfully. Then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 10 is like a party for undesirables. This is the table fellowship of the gospel, because it is those who understand that they are outcast. I just explained this in a lecture at St. Elizabeth last weekend. It is those who understand that they are outcast. Those who know because everyone points to them and puts a scarlet letter on their vest, they know that the hospitality of Jesus is a blessing because no one else will receive them. They have nowhere else to go. And that's the value of, if you will, our sins for the gospel is that they can become functional for us to help us understand why we're dependent on the instruction of Jesus, because we ourselves fall short. And of course, Jesus is sitting there 
precisely with those who fall short. Just as we mentioned Matthew, who is called as a publican, here he's lumped in with just general sinners. It even lowers the status of Matthew on his own. But like you were saying in the previous verse, Father, Jesus uses the publican's sin and the other sinner's sin. I mean, it's just completely generic. I think it's kind of funny. Just He sat with sinners, just all the generic people who do bad things and don't follow the rules, and it's not even defined. But Jesus sat specifically with them to be a scandal to those who think they've got it all figured out. Jesus needs Matthew to be a sinner, not so that Matthew can feel humble because it's not about Matthew. As a matter of fact, it's so little about Matthew. Jesus is actually caring about the scribes and the Pharisees and how he's going to use the sin of the publicans and the sinners to challenge them and the way that they think righteousness is supposed to be carried out. Jesus sets up the table fellowship specifically to be a scandal. He is turning Paul's letter to the Romans around. He's flipping it around, Richard, because just as through Israel's stumbling, the nations receive the good news of the scriptural teaching. So too, here in Matthew, through the scandal of the outcast, Matthew is once again trying to offer the Pharisee the opportunity to hear God's instruction and to submit. But of course, in Matthew, the Pharisee is concerned with the outside of the glass, And so therefore, the fact that the tax collector is socially unacceptable, that the tax collector in the eyes of the community is damaged goods, makes it impossible for the Pharisee to respond correctly to the situation. Because in Matthew, religious practice is about giving the impression of purity. The point in Matthew is that nobody is pure. So each time you pretend you're pure through piety, you're projecting a lie to everyone around you. And to the extent that you believe that lie, you become delusional and you then turn and abuse the outcast. Remember, there's no difference between a Pharisee and a tax collector except in the mind of the Pharisee. I mean, just imagine the scandal here. I mean, I'm just delving into this, Father, as we're thinking about it. You know, imagine you're having a birthday party for your six-year-old, and your six-year-old tells you all the people he wants to invite from his class. I want these five people to come to my party. And so then you go and you invite the 12 whom he didn't invite. And then you've got the bullies, you've got the kid who smells bad, you've got the kid who doesn't like your son, you've got the girls whom your son doesn't really like hanging out with, and all of his buddies never got an invitation. Well, everyone's going to be upset. First of all, the people who are there are going to say, what are we doing here? We don't deserve to be here. And all your son's buddies are going to say, wait a second, we didn't even get invited to your birthday party. We thought you liked us. We thought we were on your side. We thought we were a team. We thought we were buddies. And you say, no, the point is that, son, this is my table and this is my house and we invite who I want. And you know what? We're going to invite the people who I think should be here. And if your friends are going to complain, I'll talk to them and we'll talk about what it means to have my table and who's going to be included at my table. And if they're going to be upset after that conversation, I don't know if they want to be your friends anymore. We'll see what happens. But the point is, is that this is my table and this is my house, and I'm going to show you how this functions. And it's not about who you like or who you approve of or who's going to approve of you if you invite them to your birthday party. 
It's about me and it's about my house. And I'm specifically going to ask those who you didn't want to ask. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? The question is deeply problematic. First of all, as I said earlier, they're concerned with the wrong thing. They're concerned with appearances. It looks bad. Why would somebody who's supposed to be clean mix with people who are unclean? But as I said, there's a deeper problem. It's not just that in their eyes, Jesus is giving the wrong impression. It's that in their statement, they are demonstrating their ignorance of their own responsibility as religious figures in the temple community. They, as Pharisees, are responsible to go and to teach those who are unclean. They are supposed to bring God's instruction to the unclean and bring them into the fold. That is their responsibility. But they're so preoccupied with appearances in Matthew. They're afraid of the crowds, as in Mark. They are afraid because their power comes from men. And they are preoccupied with appearances because if they look good, that, in a way, safeguards their status in the eyes of men. But Jesus is not interested in pleasing men. He is interested in pleasing his Father, and his Father sent him to take care of those in need, and so he dines with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is just there to follow the will of his Father. The way that the Pharisees function here, they are trying to shame his disciples. They said, Why does your teacher do this? They're working on convincing the disciples that what their teacher is doing is incorrect. They won't confront Jesus directly. Now, let's go back to what we've been saying quite a bit, which is that there's this tension between the authority of Jesus the person and the authority of Jesus's word. And Jesus is carrying out the will of his father. He's carrying out the teaching, the word, the instruction of his father. And this is the same word and instruction that the Pharisees have. But they're worried about appearances. They're worried about shaming themselves by sitting down with those who are shameful. They want to keep appearances looking good and looking clean, the outside of the container, the outside of the glass, and they try to use this worldly sense of honor as in doing what the crowds think is correct as a replacement for the honor in the eyes of God, the eyes of the Father, and doing what he believes is correct. Is your righteousness going to have as its reference point the crowds, or is your righteousness going to have the reference point the Father, which is precisely what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mountain 5 through 7? What is your reference point? The Pharisees are trying to win Jesus' disciples over to their side by convincing them that the honor of the people is more important than the honor of the Father. But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And this saying, Richard, is common to the Gospel of Luke and Mark, and sums up Matthew's critique of the Pharisees, who shirked their responsibility towards the weaker brother for the sake of appearances and status. 
Of course, the question that Jesus doesn't answer here is, who are the ones who are sick? Is it the publicans and the sinners? Or is it the Pharisees themselves that he's referring to? He doesn't say. He leaves the question open. Anyone who denies the will of Jesus' father is sick and needs a physician. That which heals is the word that comes from his mouth. As he's been showing all along, I mean, just two scenes ago, he healed the paralytic. So it was with the word of the father, though, that he healed. The question is, who needs to be healed? The sinners who are sitting at his table or the Pharisees who are saying he shouldn't be sitting at the table with the sinners? <laughs> who is in need of the word? And the reality is they both need the word. They both need healing. Everyone needs a physician. That's the trick. Jesus lays out this expression so cleverly that it applies both to the ones sitting at his table and the ones who are not sitting at his table. It's even harsher than that. Matthew in verse 9 is explaining to them that they've failed because they cannot see that they are no different than the tax collector. So Matthew in verse 9, who is presenting this word to us, which is a forceful and grueling and highly critical and relentless teaching that just puts us through its paces over and over again. This Matthew, in verse 9, understands that he's no different than the tax collector. He is the true Pharisee. He is the true shepherd of Israel. He is the true teacher, like Jesus in the story, because he understands this. Again, it's not about being humble. It's about being honest. It's not about being humble in the self-effacing sense that wins favor with people in the Midwest. That's not what it's about. It's about understanding the truth of the situation. The Pharisees are not honest with themselves or their students and are therefore blind guides. They are not teachers in the Gospel of Matthew. The humility that you're talking about is the kind of humility that gets the honor of the crowds. It's not the humility that leads one to follow exclusively the word of the Father. Because if you're following the word of the Father, you may end up being mean or being loud or proud to the crowds. Your humility comes from your subservience to your Father, not subservience to the crowds. Those who are humble publicly in front of others they've received their rewards. The rewards came from the crowds. The monk or the priest who is, uh, forgive me a sinner, forgive me a sinner, forgive me a sinner. Oh, isn't he a humble person? Okay, he gained his reward. How do we know if he was being faithful to God or not, or if that was simply for his ego? We don't know. Only God knows. The humility is not debasing yourself in front of human beings. It's about debasing yourself in front of God and not getting the honor of the crowds. This is a very fine distinction that we miss. So be very wary that whenever you think that you're acting humbly, you have to remember who your reference point is. Being humble scripturally is being useful. It means eliminating your will so that all that is functional for you is the will of the Father, which is the value of the Lord Jesus Christ in the story. The only thing that counts is what his Father wills. You are sowing seed and working a field that is not yours, creating fruit that is not yours, but all belongs to the landowner. And this is what the publican is doing, and that's why he's 
rejected by his own community, but the one who's faithful to God renders his fruit and his labor to God alone. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, and I challenge anyone who falsely interprets this as saying, the Lord really came to take care of the weak people, so we shouldn't take up his time. No. He's saying that if you think you're righteous, it's a false righteousness, and I can't help you. So you better quickly understand that you're not righteous, which is why Matthew is giving us this instruction to show us that we are unrighteous so that we can make ourselves small before the will of the Father and become useful for his purposes. That's what this is about. This quote comes from Hosea, and in Hosea, the constant sin is that people, when they say that they're worshiping the Lord, they're in fact worshiping Baal. They're doing all the kinds of things that would make Baal happy, but refuse to do the things that would please the one who they think is their God, but who in fact is not their God because he's not functioning as their God. Baal is functioning as their God because that's the one they turn to when they're in trouble. And what they do when they're in trouble is they multiply sacrifices. So the Lord has to remind them time and time again that the three things that he was looking for was truth and faithfulness to him, kindness or chesed, loving kindness, or steadfast love. It's translated multiple ways. And knowledge of God, which is his instruction. The problem is that these people, these Pharisees, are not showing that they understand what Scripture says. They don't have the knowledge of God. They're not showing any kind of chesed or kindness or steadfast love towards others. Therefore, they're not showing any truth or faithfulness to the Lord. They've completely undermined any claim they have to have God or God's instruction as their teacher or their father. They've undermined themselves. Now, the Pharisees have undermined themselves. The people sitting at his table, the jury's still out. They sat at table with Jesus, but will they stay faithful to Jesus? We know that one does stay faithful. That's Matthew. He faithfully wrote the word. What happens with the other publicans and sinners? God only knows. In Hosea, the people worship in the temple for their own glory. Their incense, as it is in Isaiah, is a stench in the Lord's nostrils. He's not interested in their worship. He's not interested in the way in which their worship manifests a kind of liturgical purity. He's not interested. You're not pure because you completed a certain set of rituals. You are pure when you show mercy on your neighbor. Remember the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, that God will be merciful to you so long as you also forgive those who sin against you. God desires mercy. He's not interested in our worship. It doesn't do anything for him. What he wants is the service he demands and he wills, which is that each of us would take care of each other and each of us would show mercy towards each other and not look down our noses at the outcast or those whom we would call unclean through our own hubris. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. 
Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.